if you don't have that, then it really is a wild guess, right? If you just keep bidding high to make sure that you make a profit, somebody else is going to come in that's done that before and they're just going to clean your clock on it. So a lot of these machine building companies start out with, I guess, mechanical assemblies of things that they've built before. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. If you are in the custom machinery business or building a custom machine using control systems from scratch, you have several challenges. While you might have previous experiences in building similar machines, each job is unique The materials and the process may vary, the tooling required may be completely different, and then you need to keep calibrating the interaction of materials, tooling, and variables using data gathered through your control systems until you get the desired throughput you need from your machines to produce the jobs profitably and competitively. In today's episode, our guest, Frank Lamb, shares his insights on the process of building control systems required to increase the capacity of custom machinery. He also discusses the difference between the sales and production cycles for the boxed juice business and their co-packaging arrangements. Finally, he discusses why it is important to have historical data to code, track time to code for each job, and have templates for each job that you can use as a baseline to remain profitable with each job. Let me introduce Frank to you. Frank Lamb is a machinery and factory automation teacher and business consultant. He specializes in systemization, machine building, and controls. He is involved with factory automation projects and software training across North America. His background includes more than 300 electrical and controls design projects, as well as the design and fabrication of several machines. In addition to specializing in automation and controls, he is an experienced mechanical machine designer and project manager. With supplementary training in Six Sigma and lean manufacturing, as well as many years of experience managing large capital projects, his clients find that he brings a unique perspective as a consultant and solutions provider. After compiling years worth of knowledge and recognizing a void in many factory workers' practical understanding of their jobs, his book, Industrial Automation, Hands-On, was published by McGraw-Hill Professional in June 2013. In 2019, he published another book, Advanced PLC Hardware and Programming. He also produces online training courses. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, Frank. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Happy to be here. Okay, amazing. And I am super excited to have you as well because the kind of stories you are going to have 
from the shop floor transformation perspective, it's going to be so exciting. Just to kick things off, do you want to start with your personal story and your current focus, Frank? Sure. I am a, an electrical engineer by trade. Okay. Uh, I got my degree very late in life. I was a 30-year-old freshman in college. That's pretty cool. Um, after that time, I very quickly got involved in control systems, and uh, maybe just due to being a, a little bit crazy and impatient, I decided to start my own company okay. uh, at about age 33. So it evolved into becoming a, a machine building and systems integration company. Okay. Uh, I'd learned, learned from some very good mentors and uh, decided to go out on my own, building control panels, designing machines, and uh, kind of connecting the dots for customers. I would say most of my customers at that time were automotive and, uh, and manufacturing customers. So that's, that's my background. Okay, amazing. So it's going to be super fun to dig into all of that. A lot of listeners might not even know what those things mean. So we are going to be digging into all of that. But before we do that, we have one of the standard questions that we ask every single guest. And that is going to be, Frank, what is your perspective on business growth? That's an interesting question. So I think growth can be defined uh, two different ways. One yeah. way would be typically people want to increase their revenue. Yeah. They want to grow their company, make it a lot bigger. But then another, another form of growth could be um, improving the performance of your company yeah. and becoming more efficient. Not every company needs to necessarily get larger. And I would say uh, not all growth is good. In automation, we actually have alarms for yeah. when things change too fast, right? We can detect that a process is changing too fast and we will alarm and shut the process down. Yep. That company that I mentioned to you actually kind of imploded. I ran it for 10 years yep. and it got too big too fast. So that's one of those cases. I kind of uh, got the bite that was too big to chew and that almost destroyed the company. So I went to work for somebody else for a while huh. and got a little dis different perspective on, on growth in the machine building industry. That's very interesting. And that's what we all do, especially in the beginning, when you are starting the company for the first time, it, our perspective is always going to be, hey, get the revenue, get the revenue. I want to grow as possible. And you are not going to be thinking about the sustainability and also the long-term health of the business. But once you sort of you know grow up, then you figure out that, no, no I mean, the business is far more than that. So let's dig deeper into your machine building world. And the people who might not be familiar with that space, what is machine building? So let's say if I'm the automotive manufacturer and I am not as familiar with the automation world and machine building world. So my choice is going to be either I am going to be buying a machine from the provider and I don't know if there is going to be a build part. So do you want to describe a little bit more from the perspective of automotive manufacturer? What does machine building means and why companies are trying to build these machines or of the shelf machine that are going to be there? Are they, are they not going to be enough for my needs? Right. So there are some standard types of machines. We call them OEM machines, Yeah. such as uh, people are probably familiar with packaging machines yeah. that are yep. film wrappers or yep. case packers and things like that. And then, of course, there's other standard machinery like presses that you just put tools in and it 
It forms apart injection molding machines, yeah. but there's a really big space for custom machine building. Okay. So when somebody builds an automotive line, let's say yeah. that's going to manufacture uh, alternators or something like that. Yeah. All of the tooling is custom. The layout of the line is custom. There are a lot of kind of standard mechanisms within it, but they're put together in creative ways. You know, you'll have pick and places and dial tables and uh, robots and yeah. typical things you'd see in manufacturing, but it's all customized around the type of part that's being produced. So there's some very large manufacturers that are in that space and everything they do is customized to the customer's requirements. It's a one-off. Okay, so I have seen this in my personal experience as well. A lot of our customers, they are really in that custom machine building space. And I don't know if they are going to have any alternative for them when they are exploring this. So you mentioned that, you know, this is very applicable in case of your automotive where you, let's say if you are building the line, then you may require different kind of, you know, machines or the configuration of the machine that you might be requiring that might be very unique to your processes. And that's the reason why you probably need a custom machinery. So is automotive typically the, the, the industry that needs the custom machinery or are there any industries that require the custom machinery as well? Well, pretty much all of the large manufacturers have that. Um, okay. One of the projects I got involved with uh, early on after I closed my first company okay. was with 3M. And 3M is probably well known for making you know, hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of products. Yeah. So the line that I worked on first when I went to work for Wright Industries were for respirator filters. Okay. And it's just the filters. And of course, that's very customized. Their filter design would be different than somebody else's filter design. So uh, every little part of that, from the tooling to ultrasonic welders to the guarding that goes around it and everything had to be customized. And so what those big machine builders do is go find vendors for all the little parts and then put them together in, in creative ways. And of course, they make all kinds of other plastic parts and, and, and intermediate parts that you put together to, to make the entire product also. Okay, amazing. So I know that you wanted to talk about the shop floor transformation. And obviously, from the shop floor perspective, one of that is going to be building the custom machine. So do you want to describe a story, which business you worked with? You know, what were their original driver? Why they actually wanted to do this transformation? What were the challenges? Do you want to touch on the story? Sure. So after I left uh, Wright Industries, I went back into business for myself. Yeah. I did some contracting for a while and consulting and yeah. early on got into teaching. Okay. Um, as I got into teaching, I was recommended to a customer where the teacher of that customer could not, because they were in Canada, they couldn't go down to Miami and work with this customer. So yeah. they referred me to this customer and I went down there and did some small jobs with them to start. Yeah. But over time, I got to know the owner of the plant. Okay. And what happened was they wanted to do a plant expansion and okay. they came to me and they said, we know you've done this kind of thing before. Can you help us basically double the size of our batching system? Okay. And I said, well, sure. I was upfront with them. I said, I don't necessarily know your industry very well, yeah. but the individual things you're wanting to do, turning on motors and valves and putting tanks in and things, I'll leave the mechanical part up to you, but yes, I can do the controls. Okay. So I did that. And as we did that, he started talking to me, the owner, about 
how are we going to start gathering information across this plant yeah. for record keeping, right? Yeah. Data acquisition. And I said, well, here are all the different ways you can do it. Some of your machines are really old. It's hard to get data out of them. Yeah. Some of them are newer. I'm very familiar with this brand. I don't know this brand. Over time, it turned out that that plant owner is a, a young guy who yeah. is very self-taught. And he taught himself a platform called Ignition. Okay. Um, and Ignition is, is famous in the SCADA world, which is system control, data acquisition, computer control, yeah. for having an online training program that you yeah. can take and you can basically get certified in Ignition. Yeah. Well, he went through that and started getting very good at creating SQL databases and things like that to yeah. kind of manipulate the information. And then I worked on the plant floor end to get the information to his ignition system. So going around to the individual machines and deciding, well, what kind of information do we need? What kind of a database are we going to put it in? Yeah. And then what are we going to do with the information to improve things? Yeah. So very interesting story. So, you know, obviously I would like to know a little bit more about what was the primary driver of increasing the capacity by 2x. And obviously the information is probably not going to help with the capacity, there are going to be the underlying things that you must, must have done to increase the capacity. So describe the journey, you know, what was the driver for the 2x capacity, why they wanted to increase, and maybe before that, describe the, the business a little bit more so that people can understand, you know, what was the original capacity, how many machines on the shop floor, how many people are we talking about, what are they selling, what are they producing? <laughs> so right. Do you want to touch a little bit on that? Sure. So this company is a, uh, I would call them a uh, boutique beverage manufacturer. Okay. They're not as big as the uh, the Coca-Colas and the Pepsis and things like that. They're not yeah. as big as the Nestle's. Yeah. And they, they started out, they're an Argentinian company who moved to the United States in 2003 and built okay. a small beverage plant. Okay. They had some of their own brands. So yeah. they make boxed juices yeah. In addition to the typical bottled water and things like that, that you would see. Yeah. And they also make uh, sodas. Okay. So what's interesting about that is the box juices in particular, there's a company called Tetra Pak, and they're well known for building the, the typical little juice boxes that you've probably seen. Yeah. They restrict the number of vendors that they can have in a specific geographical area so they will give a license to that particular company and say, okay, we won't put another company just like it in your area, right? So they're kind of protected. Huh, very um, interesting. So, so because of that, some other businesses come to them and say, well, we need, we want box juices also. Can you make them for us with yeah. our, our brand name on them? Their brands are, uh, you know, they came in with a brand called Goliath, for instance, not real well known outside of Florida and the Caribbean. Yeah, uh, but they also do co-packing for Nestle and okay. uh, and some of the bigger beverage companies, and they would like to grow, but they're geographically limited. There is literally nowhere that they can buy buildings in the area without going many miles away. Right, they're in the Miami area, and they're completely surrounded by other buildings. So they're kind of they have to make do with the space that they've got. They can't buy neighboring buildings or buildings across the street or anything. So we talked a lot about, okay, how can we increase production with the space that we've already got? Can we, yeah. can we build straight up? Well, we went into the, the batching room and we said, there's space here for another three tanks. So we did that. We put another three giant tanks. They bought them used from other companies that had closed. 
And then the plant manager's pretty good mechanically. So he designed the piping okay. and then I designed all of the control system for it. And basically in, in some ways just duplicated what was there. Uh, the interesting part about that is a lot of that equipment is built by some very large companies, mostly out of Europe. Yeah. There aren't any U.S. companies that build big juice compounding systems and things like that. There's a company called Seidel. They're European and they're pretty well known in that area. So what we did is took a lot of their code, basically took it apart, rewrote the parts that we could upgraded the equipment, went to much more modern controllers, and then duplicated the tank logic, right? The tank programming for the new tanks that were put in there. The other company that they deal with is this company, Tetra Pak, I mentioned that, right? They build boxing, box making equipment. And then yeah. there's a whole lot of packaging things on the lines that come out. So they started out, they had two production lines plus a water line, and they duplicate they do sodas on the water line also. Yeah. They expanded out, went from four to seven tanks and made three production lines, three Tetra Pak production lines. And then we started customizing a lot of the arrangement of the conveyors and things rather than calling Tetra Pak in. That would have been very expensive to have Tetra Pak do all that to, to upgrade it. So they just uh, got together with me and a I helped them pick a couple of other vendors and you know people from different different companies and we all put it together. Okay, that's very interesting. So let me try to follow along and I am pretty sure my listeners are trying to follow along as well. So you mentioned that they had two different business line. Number one, they had their own uh, box juice that they were trying to sell that they were doing a little bit of co-packing as well. So when you try to duplicate these things that you were you know, trying to replicate, my understanding is going to be this was for the boxed juice business line, not for, for the co-pack or is it going to be for both? It's for both. So, so there's only one batching area. And what they do is they mix all the juice in big tanks. Okay. Mix water and fructose and, you know, different chemicals and, and um, mix those in the big tanks. And then the big tanks slowly feed the boxing machines or the soda machines or the water machines or whatever you want to. You route these things different ways using pipes and lots of sensors on the pipes to make sure you've got them hooked up the right way and that sort of thing. And then, so now with seven tanks, you can do three pairs of two, which allows you to do three lines at one time. Yeah. Uh, and they have three lines. So there's also other uh, components involved. There's pasteurizers and things like that. And you can route any of the tanks to any of the pasteurizers, but there are various restrictions depending on the the speed of the line that you're feeding. So yeah. for instance, in certain cases, you can't run all three lines at once. There, there's all kinds of uh, like the blower won't produce enough air to run all the machines at once. The coolers outside, there's, there's big cooling towers and they can't cool the uh, pasteurizers fast enough to run certain combinations of juice. So there's a lot of planning that goes into this. And most of this has been done historically by hand, they'll get Excel spreadsheets and things. And, and the plant manager is very experienced in this area. And he just kind of figures things out, but we're wanting to automate that and yeah. figure out mathematically the combinations of things that can run and then forecast to the future and decide, well, what, what is the optimum combination of things to run based on personnel, on cooling requirements for those towers, on air requirements for the blowers, 
there, there's a lot that goes into that. So that's the, uh, after we gathered all the data from all these different machines, now we're taking it and trying to make almost artificial intelligence type decisions on what combinations of thing to run you know, over the next week or two based on current situations. Okay, very interesting. So let's go back to the Copac business model. And I don't know in that case, so what is going to be the responsibility of, let's say, the co-packers? Are they simply going to get the, the orders from the Nestle and they are simply going to be packing and they are also going to be responsible for shipping? So how, if you were to describe the differences between these two business models, and then we can talk about, um, you know, a little bit more on the production capacity side of things. You know, do you want to describe how the flow of the information is going to be in co-packing versus the the other when you are selling your own products? Sure. So so let's take Nestle as a case. They yeah. may come and they say, we need X number of boxes of juice by a certain time. Can you produce it? What's your price? And I'm yeah. sure there's other people bidding against uh, this company down in Miami, but let's say uh, then Miami would get that job. Yeah. The packaging would be provided by Nestle yeah. in that case. Uh, it would arrive the... The fructose is a pretty generic product. It would be ordered from whoever, their normal vendors. But then the juices that go into that often are also either provided by Nestle or whoever you're co-packing for, or they are specified by them. And that's kind of built into the price. That price fluctuates quite a bit, right? So also it can have different effects like certain certain juices like I, I know guava in particular was a very hard thing to run yeah. the machine does not run as fast it, it breaks down more so they have to build all that into the pricing model right but then that guava nectar would come from the person you're doing the co-packing for okay very interesting especially uh you know towards the 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 end you made the comment that you know when you are doing different kind of juices you need to know about the juice it can't be simply the electrical knowledge and you can't build the forecasting model because you would not know how the juice is going to behave. So in this particular case, let's say when you are trying to build the capacity that you are trying to go 2x, but you were not really familiar with the business. So how do you sort of correlate that information that, okay, you are going to have many different juices, but I have no experience with the juices. What kind of variables do I need to look for when I am doing the juice or orange versus guava versus, I don't know, maybe something else. So do you want to describe a little bit more on that? What was your journey like when you were working with these guys? Because you didn't have the knowledge uh, related to the, the material or the products in this specific case. The only thing you really knew is the electrical and then you had the mechanical side. So how does the, the, the process goes when you are planning for the capacity? Well, there was a lot of uh, discussions, of course, with the owner of the plant and the plant manager. Okay. Uh, at, at the same time, of course, uh, putting in a, a lot of the hardware myself, I knew the maintenance manager pretty well. And he had a pretty good finger on which products have a harder time running. Okay. Uh, also, some, some other things that came up that surprised me were how many times do you have to clean the system, right? That's that's something people kind of forget about, that you yeah. have to rinse the system between batches, certainly if you're changing products, but also there's some time uh, requirements. If, the, if it's been running for a certain number of gallons, then you need to clean the tanks, yeah. right, uh, between those runs. If you're using the same product, you, don't, you might not have to clean them. If you're changing products, then you do. Yeah. So that's another one of those kind of 
artificial intelligence things that you need to forecast. How many times am I going to have to clean these systems if I use this line to run this product? Yeah. So keep in mind, we have three different lines. We have three different pairs of tanks and we can route them through all different pasteurizers. And depending on other production, we have to mix and match those lines so that the number of cleanings, because cleanings are basically wasted time, right? Yeah. It's, it's uh, in the OEE, that's non-available time. It's not production, uh, uh, valuable production time. So, so you have to make those estimates on what's most efficient in that time. And it was just discussion. And of course, every time I gather the data, I put it in great big old lists and I look at the data and I start to get a little bit of a feel for it. Yeah. And of course, the plant manager has been doing this for years with Excel spreadsheets. I can also go back and look at his Excel spreadsheets. So, okay. So very interesting. And since you mentioned that some people do miss some of these variables, and I can almost guarantee that when people are going to be really experienced versus not as experienced, their uh, Excel sheet is probably not going to be as sophisticated in capturing all of the variables. So let's say if you were to describe uh, the problems that you commonly see, then you are kind of, you know, working with a plant manager who is not going to be as experienced in planning this capacity, and they are going to be missing on some of the variables. So maybe describe a little bit of how many different inputs do you need in the calculation of OEE, and what are the things that typically people miss in capturing those? Well, I would say the plant manager had a really good handle on the production side because... He came from a South American background in Lima, Peru, Okay, uh, and he'd been doing it for 20 or 30 years. So he had a lot of experience using the old-fashioned ways, using Excel spreadsheets and things like that. So he he actually had a pretty sophisticated numerical, you know, bunch of numerical calculations that he could make his his guesses on. It turns out there is software that will do that uh, nowadays, but it's very expensive, right? And it's probably... I would say Coke and Pepsi have their own proprietary software that they use for those things. He didn't have access to that. So he handled that part of it. And where I guess where my uh, knowledge would come in is, okay, I can automatically grab the up and down times of the machines. I can tell you where the fault is in the line and how it cascaded down. Where is the, the binding? Which machine is going down the most? and that sort of thing. So it was a combination of things. And a lot of that was still managed by a spreadsheet. Then we also migrated to a uh, CMMS system, a, okay. a maintenance manufacturing system, where the maintenance manager could also start tracking the uh, the usage of you know uh, sensors and things on the lines. He could tell when things were up and down and, and look at inventory that way. So over the last, I guess, seven or eight years that I've been working on this, all these new uh, software packages, the CMMS system and and the spreadsheets have evolved and everything else. And now also we have probably five years of data on the ignition system. So uh, things are getting a little more intelligent that way. Okay, very interesting. So do you have any other stories that you might be able to cover? Are your engagements going to be similar to what you have already described, do you find any differences when you are working with different kind of customers? Are their challenges going to be similar when they are, let's say, either trying to compute the OE, trying to design, or trying to increase the capacity of their lines? Uh, are their challenges going to be similar? How do you describe the, the differences in, in multiple environments when you are working with them? Well, I would say that's the that's the only beverage manufacturer I've ever worked with. Uh, it's it's where a lot of my last seven or eight years' experience have come from. But 
most of my other experience, a lot of it has been with these these machine builders and systems integrators. Yeah, um, I do a lot of work for one of them right now that builds, um, uh, I would say, medical device equipment and yeah. uh, life sciences equipment. Yeah, and I've been able to watch them evolve from a. And you were speaking about growth before, and they've yeah. evolved from a company. When I got to know them, um, they were probably twenty people, and now they're a hundred. Yeah. Uh, so I've seen them grow from a almost a mom and pop shop into a big corporation that uses a lot of tools. Yeah. And is much more high tech. All their control panels that they build used to be hand built. Now uh, they have CNC machines cutting the panels for them and automatically drilling things. So the technology just in the last. 10 or 12 years that I've known them has really increased, plus hired a whole lot of very talented engineers over that time. Okay, so very cool. So now let's talk about the differences in, in these two environments. So in one case, this was more of the custom built, you know, they decide to do everything on their own. I am pretty sure these guys are going to run into a lot of challenges, but the other ones are also going to run into a lot of different challenges. So let's say if you were to compare the, the differences in these two environments, maybe give the, uh, you know, three pros and three cons of both of the environment, what are the challenges either plant managers or the operations manager can expect when they are operating in these two environments? Sure. So I would say that the beverage manufacturer yeah. is very, very lean in the in the management area. They don't, okay. there are probably out of a hundred people in that plant, there are maybe seven that are are what I would call uh, decision makers. Okay. And then there are you know some production managers, things like that. But they're running, I would say, a very flat organization. Okay. This systems integrator that I'm working right now with has a whole lot of different support staff, a lot of different levels of complexity, I guess, in it. And they're growing so fast that they have to plan things a lot more carefully. At the same time, it's it's truly much more of a corporate environment where decisions are made in teams. There are lots and lots of meetings, right? That's that's a there's pluses and minuses to having meetings, as you probably know. For instance, uh, you know the beverage manufacturer, there are literally no company meetings. We okay. don't, we you get together with people individually as you need to. Yeah. Uh, in this company, well, every Monday morning we have an engineering meeting. Right. Okay. So I only work kind of part time for them. So I make sure I'm there every Monday morning. They have very organized ways of doing just about anything. If you have a problem, you escalate it up the up the line. Right. They have very, uh, very rigid ways of, of managing things. Yeah. And obviously they might not be doing that just for the sake of it. They will be doing because they have learned some lessons along the way. So let's say, again, let's say if you go back to compare these two environments, in one case, you said that, you know, it's very lean, it's very entrepreneurial, they are not going to be as sophisticated as organized in the planning. But I am pretty sure, you know, they are going to run into a lot of challenges because, or, you know, once you grow to a point where you would require that sophisticated planning, so what is the role of the sophisticated planning? And I don't know, I mean, maybe you want to provide a little bit of example of where things can fall apart when you are not doing any planning versus you are slightly more conscious in, in, in what you are doing. So do you have any stories of failures by any chance that could happen, let's say, in the lean environment, because they are not just thinking through, they are doing things as they are seeing, but then they obviously there, there are going to be some problems. I can almost guarantee that, right? Otherwise, you know, they'll probably grow to a billion dollars. They are small for a reason. So, <laughs> so talk about some of the some of the problems that you you uh, have 
experience comparing these two environments in one case obviously they are slightly more conscious in the other case they are not as much sure one of the problems that the beverage manufacturer has is that they are in a they're in an area that there are other juice manufacturers okay and because the other juice manufacturers are kind of i would say poaching their best employees they okay. they go in and they actually uh, they can pay a lot more right they can okay. probably give the normal floor workers $5 more per hour there is constant turnover okay right and then covid hit yeah. right which was which was another thing because all of a sudden your margins are kind of thin yeah. and uh, then covid hits and you you know people can't come in for a little while and then you start production now they were fortunate in that they got a government contract yeah. early on and they became a what do you call it a critical critical company so they were the government came in and kind of bailed them out said we need box water yeah. Of all things. Right. So uh, they had to pivot there. Yeah. Um, they had to figure out where are we going to get our labor from? Right. Yeah. So they use a lot of um, I would say in that plant, there are five to six people that speak English and the rest are almost entirely Spanish. Okay. So a lot of their workers, they're going to these Spanish speaking areas in yeah in Miami and that's where they're getting their workers and they know ahead of time that they're going to lose a certain percentage of those workers probably the best ones right because the best ones are going to get taken by the other bigger uh, manufacturers in the area so that's been one of their challenges uh, whereas I would say if they were a little more corporate and organized they might have been able to pay a little more they might have been a little more profitable so now that's a very interesting argument so let's uh, let's appeal that back a little bit okay so number one, when you are going to be corporate, typically when you are going to be talking about these environments, the reason why the lean entrepreneurial companies don't invest in heavy processes because they feel that it is probably going to be overhead. But in your case, you are saying that, you know what, I had the problem of people. The problem of people is going to be there in both environments equally because that's people-related problem. So I don't know what I am missing here. Number one, when you are going to have those extra processes, you are probably going to be more expensive, but your argument is they should be cheaper. So they should be cheaper more from the efficiency perspective, I guess, as opposed to more from the planning perspective. So tell me a little bit more why the corporate environment is going to be cheaper as opposed to this environment, or they must be investing on, in a lot of ad hoc custom processes that is consuming their dollars that they are not able to afford to be able to pay to their employees. And that could be the reason why they are losing the employees. Do you want to uh, you know, touch base a little bit more? Sure. In, in the case of the integrator that I do the work for right now, yeah. they consciously made a decision not to work with automotive companies okay. and typical manufacturers because it was a uh, kind of a low hanging fruit thing. The automotive manufacturers are looking for the cheapest equipment they can get. Yep. It's a stressful environment. So they made a, a conscious decision to say, hey, even though we can do that work, yeah. uh, we're going to start focusing on the life sciences industry instead, okay. which has a little more margin, a lot more regulation. So you yep. have to have more people involved in, um, in validation of software, in uh, you know checking a lot of boxes along the way, a lot more documentation yeah. than if you were building equipment for automotive manufacturers, where they just want you to kind of cut corners wherever you can. You know, right? we want the least expensive um, line that will do the job, and then we'll add the capabilities later. 
Okay, so very interesting. So in my experience, I don't know, you know, and I don't really have much of the experience, uh, you know, with the food and beverage business. But one thing I can tell you from my experience is they are going to have probably one of the highest margins. I don't know if that is your experience or not. So again, going back to my example of comparing these two environments, okay, one environment is slightly organized overall in terms of the processes in the other one, you are slightly leaner. In this particular case, the product that you are trying to sell, in my experience, I think that is going to be slightly more high margin. Here, you did not choose to work with the automotive, but then you went for slightly higher margin, but that margin is still going to be lower than in, in, uh, you know, from your food and beverage. So in this particular case, in these smaller ones, where is your money? You know, because you must have much higher margin to be able to invest either in your employee or the system, so they must be doing something that is sucking all of their margins. So what is that? Do you want to touch on that? Sure. One of my discoveries, and this was kind of <laughs> shocking, but water takes up half that plant. Okay. Right? There's a there's a there's giant bottle blower, and it blows the bottles for both the water and the juices and the sodas, right? Yeah. In that area. Yeah. But they produce water, even though water is not profitable. Okay. Right. And the reason is because you've probably seen in these stores, the bottles are getting thinner and thinner. Yeah. Uh, most of the money's in the bottle, not in the water. Yeah. Right. It's in, it's in these little things that they blow. There's a lot of energy that goes into water. Okay. And so your competition against the Walmarts and things like that, you're not making money on your water, but you have to provide water because the people that buy the juice also want water. So, so the reason that you're making the water is because the people that want juice expect you to also sell them water. You couldn't just sell them juice. Okay, so let me make sure I understand this. So, okay, so in this particular case, they were producing the water, even though it was not high margin. So is that what you are trying to tell that that might be sucking the margin because they made a conscious decision to produce the water along with the juice, even though it was not profitable? That's right. They have to. They're required. The people won't buy that. They'll pick somebody else that makes the juice and makes the water over you who would only make the juice. Now, they've worked around that by making, for instance, they have some bottles that you can stack higher. Okay. So those bottles you can put on a, on pallets, stack them a little higher and put them on ships. And ships have higher, higher ceilings and things than some of the uh, trucks do. So they can actually uh, kind of carve out their own niche and and make pallets of water that stack a little bit higher. So you get a little more density and lower shipping costs, right? Yeah. And so they've kind of got that niche in the Caribbean because that's that's how the, the bottles ship, right? In the Caribbean. Whereas in the US, uh, you know, I'd say the Nestle's of the world and the whoever, um, uh, I forget the other one, Niagara, I think, also has a lot of the Walmart and the bulk water taken care of. So this plant can't even produce that much water but they do produce water that go on these container ships that can go out into the Caribbean and supply the islands. And then also, of course, they have to produce water when they sell juice um, to the, the people who order their juice. Yeah. Very interesting. So let's go back to your, you know, the custom machinery example. So let's say if I am trying to compare the machinery differences, let's say if I was doing, I don't know, man, maybe the medical manufacturing before and all of a sudden I am finding an opportunity in the food and beverage business and I am probably going to be utilizing my knowledge in the food and beverage business that it is probably going to be the same but you know that 
you know, the you need to pay attention to the material differences. You need to make sure that, you know, the process that you are going to be utilizing in both of the environments are probably going to be different. So in your experience, when you compare these more from the OE perspective, more from the plant operation perspective, what are the differences between the, the machinery and lines and where people can fail, let's say, if they don't understand those businesses deeply? Well, machine building, I guess, ahead of time, I would say, I, I don't recommend that anybody gets into what I would call custom machine building. Yeah. Finding some kind of a niche and building something that's well within your custom zone can be profitable. Okay. Right. So in their case, they, they, uh, this company that I work with here makes, uh, a pretty standardized machine for a large company, which I will not name yeah. uh, due to some NDA kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. But the machinery is the more or less, it's the same thing over and over again. And I would say that's 50% of their business, if not more. So that's it, it's pretty high tech equipment, but it's well within their comfort zone of manufacturing. Whereas some of the other custom ones, like, like the big one that I worked in here, it was always feast or famine. Yeah, uh, I know when I had my own company, I could make money on nine projects and lose it all on the 10th. Yeah, that's the way the custom machine building business is, right? Because you're guessing you're building something you've never built before. And how long is it going to take you to build this? How much money is it going to cost? It almost always takes longer, right? And so you're, you're making a whole lot of guesses. It's a very uh, volatile business. Whereas anything that's standardized, uh, this company that I work with here, like I said, they they more or less build the same equipment, even though it's very high tech. It's the same robots. It's the same little pallets and things. They're dealing with the same products over and over again. Yeah. So it's more predictable. So let's say if you were the business owner and there are a lot of different custom machines in the shop and you wanted to do something to make sure that even though the customers are always going to demand the new things, sometimes it is not really going to be in your control because that's the business you are in. But obviously you don't want to lose money in because of the unpredictability. So what are some of the steps that you might take to make sure that you are not going to be losing the money in the custom machinery business? Well, I think you have to have a history of bidding. If you okay. don't have a whole lot of uh, examples of previous jobs that you've done and you know what it took to do those, yeah, right. you're able to say, well, this, this was made up of these components. It took this long. It took this many man hours. If you don't have that, then it really is a wild guess. And if you bid, right, if you just keep bidding high to make sure that you make a profit, yeah. somebody else is going to come in that's done that before and they're just going to clean your clock on it, right? So a lot of these uh, machine building companies start out with, I guess, me mechanical assemblies of things that they've built before, right? Okay. Uh, whether it's presses or uh, dials or, or whatever it is. And then they kind of grow from that. They'll add something to it. Yeah. Uh, they'll bring in technology from another vendor, right? They'll partner with other people. Yeah. Um, this company that I work with now, they don't build their own machines. They partner with somebody that builds the mechanical assemblies. And then they provide the controls and the design capability to put all the stuff together in some of the assembly people. So again, sticking to what you know, I, I would say it makes things much more predictable. So in this particular case, obviously the costing is going to be a very important factor that you need to know what costed in the past for the similar jobs. And since you have many different jobs that are going to be in custom in nature, so it's going to be really hard to compare them. But in my experience, when we work with our customers, they don't really have their costs down. 
So even if they might feel that, you know what, I sort of understood my cost, but they are not capturing the inventory appropriately, or they are not really capturing the overheads appropriately, the way they should be captured in the cost and calculation. So obviously your uh, you know, cost is going to be off. And because of that, your bits are going to be off and you might be losing a lot of money. Have you seen similar in your experience or the historical data that you find in the places where you work and especially in the place where they don't really have any sort of ERP system, I guess, in the juice shop. So how do you find all of that costing data to be able to estimate? Well, the bottling company, obviously, it's just uh, uh, they they know the cost of the raw materials that go into things. They can pretty much estimate that. I would say a lot of that is fairly common knowledge or they can get quotes pretty easily. When you get into things like custom machinery, yeah. you, if you don't have a track record, then you can spend $10,000 putting together a quote. And a lot of that time is, is going to vendors, asking how, you know, for quotes on things and then just collecting huge lists and basically, uh, you know, archiving that information to use later and hoping that the price didn't change too much, right? So right now, uh, it would be a really bad time to be bidding, you know, equipment because I would say prices are changing by 20 to 30% and lead times are going way out, right? Yeah. Especially for products manu manufactured overseas. Uh, you, you've heard a lot of the things on the shipping. So I know, for instance, things like uh, touch screens and sensors and things that are made in other countries are really long lead times right now, which directly affects the, the price of the machinery itself. Okay, so that's a very interesting comment there. So you mentioned that, you know what, uh, if you spend $10,000 just in quoting, and I don't know how many opportunities you are quoting, let's say if you quote 10, you don't win any of them, then you have already lost $100,000. So I don't know if that is going to be accounted towards your, your the cost of quote, or where do you account that money of the quoting itself? Because the faster you can quote, the cheaper the product is going to be for you, right? The less time you have to invest in doing the quote. And if you are spending, let's say, I don't know, maybe 40 hours of your most experienced consultant, <laughs> then obviously you're going to be losing a lot of money. Do you have similar experience in your, uh, the engagement that you work with that they are spending a lot of money in the quoting process? Well, so, so when I had my own company, I did the quoting, I put in the extra time on the weekends, right? Yeah. Doing, uh, estimating what things cost. Yeah. As companies get bigger, uh, they start using the engineering staff for a yeah. lot of that, right? And then yeah. they may have uh, one person that's, say, dedicated to applications. Yeah. As they get even larger, yeah. uh, the really big company that I worked for here in the Nashville area had a team of applications engineers, and that's all they did. And so you could have uh, two application engineers that worked on one machine, yeah. three-dimensional modeling, uh, getting all the quotes from all the vendors, putting together a really nice proposal. Yeah. And it might take them uh, two to four weeks of all of their time, right? So that's an expensive quote. I think the smaller companies uh, tend to do it with their existing staff. And yeah. that's why maybe a lot of... Um, a lot of engineers in the in the design area end up working extra hours. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not unusual for people to working be working sixty or seventy hours. So maybe forty of fifty of those hours are on your project, and then the extra ten to twenty hours could be on applications and quoting. And the people that you were talking about that were getting posts. I mean, who's the 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 most important person? in the organization, is this going to be the person who's actually quoting? Because obviously their knowledge is going to be super important because if you actually lose them, then obviously you cannot run your business, right? 
That's right. They, you better have people with at least, I would say, 20 years of experience already <laughs> doing that. They probably, all the applications engineers I knew at Wright Industries had, had been controls or mechanical designers uh, for at least 10 years you know, before that, before they started getting into applications. Okay, awesome. So that's it for today. Do you have any last minute closing thoughts or remarks for our listeners? Um, I, I suppose in general, my experience, that, that's why I mentioned that too fast a growth is, is not necessarily good. Yeah. Um, I would advise people, I guess, who are, are running a business to learn as much as possible, right? Learn, learn what capabilities are out there yeah. uh, in, in machinery and in, you know, systems integration. Learn what's possible for your plant. Do a little bit of research. Talk to even some of the vendors and things about what the new technologies are that might save them money. Uh, use your vendors for, for that knowledge. Uh, I would say train your people, right? Because right now you have tremendous turnover. All the companies that I've been working with have tremendous turnover. And so documentation of what those people did. So yeah. that's not a total surprise when you lose somebody yeah. and, and you can't find somebody to just plug into their position, right? It's a lot of turnover. I think they call it the great resignation uh, right now. They, they said that a high percentage of people are looking for other jobs. So yeah. document everything so that personnel transitions are a little bit easier and then the other, the other thing I guess I thought about a little bit today, uh, define your company's objectives outside of your mission statement, right? Mission statements to me are kind of, a lot of times they're fluffy and they're for external consumption or for your own internal company's consum yep. consumption, but um, reevaluate things and document what you're really trying to achieve within your company. And of course, there's some great books and things that go with this. Transitions is one of our uh, traction. Traction is the one I'm thinking of. Yep. Traction is a really good book. Um, a, a lot of good books out there that will, I suppose, help people get some of that knowledge. Okay, amazing. And my personal takeaway from this conversation is going to be if you are in the business such as custom machinery, where you are going to have a lot of different moving parts, and your problem is going to be either your people are being overworked uh, or they are getting close, the problem may be underlying. So make sure you are tracking some of the KPIs such as, okay, what is time to port? How much time these people are investing? Even if they are investing their own personal time, it's not fair to them because they are going to be investing a lot. And obviously, they are going to get frustrated and finally, they are going to leave you. So if you have people-related problems, figure out where those real problems are and what could be the solution for that. On that note, I really want to thank you for your time. Frank, this has been a powerful episode. Well, thank you very much, Sam. I enjoyed it. Amazing. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Frank, head over to automationllc.com. It's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-I-O-N-L-L-C.com and join the Automation Academy. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Vlad Romanov, who shares his insight into how the two schools of production, discrete and continuous, differ, including their KPIs. Also, the interview with David Schultz, who shares his insights into how manufacturers can increase the capacity from their existing investments by connecting them in real time. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. 
If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.